Lady Warriors. <laughs> Good morning, Olive Knowles. It is great to be back here with you. I've been here once before for District Assembly. That was about eight years ago, but it's great to be back. One of our great churches in California. And what a privilege it is for me to be with Kevin and Jane Hardy. We absolutely love your pastor and spouse, and they are a blessing to Christy and I. They're a blessing to the church. And I know how much you love Kevin and Jane. Would you like to thank the Lord for your pastor? So you said, what in the world was, was that video about? Was that 100 years ago? I mean, did that, you feel like you're watching a movie for something that happened decades and decades ago. That was actually about six or seven years ago, and the person with a the backpack there with the darker hair at the time was me, and we are in Asia Pacific. So where's Asia Pacific? Right over here. Asia Pacific, that's a place called Papua New Guinea. That is a real group of Nazarenes. This is six, seven years ago. This is in a remote part of the world. But that is me coming into a district assembly. That's how I got greeted, with those beautiful uh, people with the colorful uh, flowers everywhere. Those are your Nazarene brothers and sisters. That's the kind of a diverse church you are. So diverse. Did you see me pointing at that screen a minute ago? Uh, the man who came up to me came up waving the spear in my face. He was about this tall, wearing nothing but a coconut. <laughs> but it was his Sunday best coconut. Uh, and, but that's a part of the amazing diversity of the church. And that's what we're celebrating today. That's a part of what it means to be a Nazarene. That we're not just Nazarenes in USA and Canada. We're Nazarenes in 164 world areas. You're a part of a very, very big Nazarene family. And the only way that we can do that is through churches like you and other churches around the world who not only believe passionately about going into all the world and preaching the gospel and the gospel, the holiness message that we proclaim, but that you're also a generous people. And that's what this day is about. It's to think about your generosity and what God might be calling you to, to, to do to be a part of that Nazarene global family. So uh, I'm going to invite your attention with me, please, to turn to uh, Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. And we're going to just read a few verses. But this is a really famous story 
from the Gospels about the life of Jesus. And, and I don't know how long it's been since you've heard a sermon on this, but, but I don't remember actually hearing a sermon over the last 15 or 20 years. Just this week, Kevin and I were talking about what we were going to do today, and I sent him a message and a possibility. He said, you know what, that, met, that scripture got preached here about uh, eight weeks ago. So I said, well, let's shift gears. And I really feel like the Lord brought me to this passage, and I want to read it for you. And I know some of you are online and others of you are here, but those of you who are here in the room, would you stand, please, as a way to honor the reading of God's Word? Mark chapter 12, beginning with verse 41, it says, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put. And he watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts. Someone say, threw in. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. This is a word from the Lord for us today. Father, I thank you for this great church. I thank you, God, that for all of these generations that you have You have worked through the Olive Knolls Church of the Nazarene to bless not only this community, but to bless people around the world, people that they don't even know until they get to heaven. And I just pray today as we think again what it means for us to be a generous church and a a church who is a missions-minded church, I pray your Holy Spirit will settle in on us and just meet us in this time. Speak to our hearts. May it be so much more than my words. May it be your words to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. You might not have noticed her had you been in the temple that day. She was very inconspicuous. She was was quiet. She wasn't someone who wanted to make a scene. But she had her reasons for, for being there Who was she? Well, first of all, she was a woman. That seems obvious, but we don't know her name, and we're not told if she was a young woman or an old woman. For some reason, in my mind, I've always pictured her as an older woman, but the Bible doesn't tell us she was an older woman. For all we know, she might have had children at home. We have no idea if she was healthy. We don't know if she was sick. But what we do know is that she was a woman living in a man's world, and she was alone. The reason we know she was alone is the second thing. She was a widow. A widow in Jesus' day was required by the law to wear a particular kind of clothing so that everyone could identify her social status. And so to say that she was a poor widow, that's kind of redundant because if you're a widow, it was already assumed that you were poor. If your husband died and you had no sons, You lost your ability to sufficiently support yourself, especially in an agricultural world. There was no social security. There was no welfare. And so to call her a poor widow was a way of saying 
She was in deep trouble. In fact, the word poor, it means she was so destitute that she was in literal danger of death. Her survival was at stake. The third thing we learn about her, though, is that she was a worshiper. She had come to worship God, and she was there in the only part of the temple where she was allowed to be. So here's a picture of the temple uh, in Jesus' day. You can see the outer walls. This is a courtyard where they would sell things like pigeons and doves and various things for sacrifices. But you can see the various levels moving toward the Holy of Holies. In fact, the next slide shows us how the Jewish temple was divided into five distinct areas. First, the court of the Gentiles. That's the first section. That's the place that only the Gentiles could come. And then the court of women. So if you were a Jewish woman, you could move into the next section, moving toward the Holy of Holies. And then, of course, if you were a man, you could move into the next section, the court of men. And then there was the holy place. That was a place only for the priest to be able to attend. But finally, if you go to the very inner sanctum, you come to the most holy place. And the most holy place was where the Holy of Holies was. was. It was where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. And only the high priest could go in there. And only once a year could he even go into that part of the temple. Josephus, a Jewish historian, he tells us that the treasury The treasury where people would bring their offerings, that was located in the court of women. So in the court of women, there were 13 receptacles, or or what we would call shofar chests. And these were places for collecting offerings and taxes that were brought into the temple. They were probably called that because they were trumpet-shaped. That's what shofar means. Look at the next slide. Here's, you see the little shape here of the shofar? It looks like a trumpet, and that's what people would drop them in. Each of these chests was inscribed with various titles on that chest. It might say new shekel dues or old shekel dues if you were past due. It might say bird offerings. It might say gold for the mercy seat, etc. But there were six receptacles there called free will offering receptacles. And they were in plain view for everyone to see. They weren't hidden away. It would be kind of like you and I coming uh, to have our offering plates put right up here on these front altars when it was time to receive the offering. So there's nowhere to hide. And you'd have one offering plate labeled tithe, one labeled global missions, another labeled the building fund, and the other one labeled, say, money for the poor. And there'd be no way for you to inconspicuously pass by the offering plate Uh, You couldn't hide it. You couldn't kind of slip it in as as being passed by you. Everybody would see you. That's the way it was at the temple treasury in the court of women. And so the, the, the court of women was filled with activity. There were noises of animals, and there was people milling around, and there was people sharing local gossip and drinking their coffee and eating their donuts. And it would have been very easy for someone to slip in and slip out. And so no one noticed her coming in except for Jesus. Mark tells us that Jesus had actually positioned himself in a place to observe the people as they were giving their offerings. That, my brothers and sisters, ought to give us pause. Jesus was watching how people gave their offerings. Jesus was kind of a people watcher. 
<laughs> Jesus, Jesus would have been one of those people who liked to go to the mall just to watch people. Jesus would watch their mannerisms. He would watch how they would interact with each other. He would, he would look into their eyes and he would read their story. And Jesus realized that you could learn a lot about a person by watching how they react to giving. And what did Jesus see? Jesus saw these crowds of people filing by, people who were impatient in that line like children who are waiting for the next amusement park ride, as each person slowly put their offering into the treasury. Dozens and dozens and dozens of people. And I'm sure that those people were no different than we are. Some of those people had more to give than other people did. Some of them would even be wealthy people. And as an interesting side note, Mark, the gospel we read from, tells us that some of them were throwing their money into the containers. Now, why would someone throw their money into a container? It's because they wanted people around them to hear the noise. See, they didn't have paper money like we have. They didn't have checks. They didn't have credit cards. Their currency was coins, and a coin's value in Jesus' day was measured by the weight. How much did it weigh? That's not necessarily true for us today. Our American nickel, for example, in diameter, it's bigger than our dime, but our dime is worth more than a nickel. So it's not based on the size. But in ancient times, the currency was given value by how much silver or bronze was in that coin. So the more valuable the coin, the more it weighed which also meant the more sound it made when it was dropped into that collection bucket. And the louder it was, you knew the more generous the offering. And so here's everybody making a scene. They're kind of looking out of the corner of their eye. Is it anybody watching me? And more importantly, is anybody listening to see how generous I am when I put in my offering? So to throw coins in a bucket might look something like this or sound something like this. Close your eyes for a second. Just close your eyes. Now you can open your eyes. Did you hear how generous I am? Man, think how impressed my friends would be. Therefore, think how impressed God would be if he heard how loud my coin was in that bucket. I just gave a lot of money into the treasury. And Jesus is watching all of this. And she comes by. And there's no fanfare. There's no drum roll. There's no... Big deal. She's just quietly waiting her turn. She's humbly walking over the shofar chest, and she drops in her offering. I want you to notice the difference. Everyone else has been throwing their offerings in, and she puts her offering in. Two tiny little coins. These coins are called leptas. I've seen these leptas. They're so tiny that they're, they're not like any coin you've ever seen before. Sometimes people call these a mite. These were the smallest coins available in that society. And it's hard for us to even figure how much a lepta would even be worth in today's currency. But in her day, I'm just going to tell you, they weren't worth very much. 
Each one of these leptas, these two coins, was one thirty-second of a denarius, which is considered to be like the daily wage of a soldier. And so 128 lepta, that would be a day's pay. Two lepta, that would be nearly worthless. I mean, that's literally like, like a penny today. That's what a lepta would be like. If, if I drop this penny on the ground, it's worth so little money today, I bet you wouldn't even stop to pick it up. If it was a quarter, you'd pick it up. But, but a penny won't even buy a gumball for you. But that was all she had. And Mark tells us that she had two of those. And I think it's significant that Mark says there were two because she could have kept one for herself and still participated in that offering. Keeping one for herself wouldn't have paid her rent. It wouldn't have given her a five-course meal, but at least it would have enabled her maybe to buy a little crust of bread that afternoon in order to sustain her through the day. And here's the other question I have. What good does it do for her to give both of those? I mean, what possible difference could it one little lepta make for a free will offering? That's like pocket change to other people. That's, they threw the lepta on their dresser at night before they went to bed. But she gave both of them anyway. Now, which offering do you think was worth more? Now, monetarily, that's kind of a silly question. Because if amount was the only issue here, that would be like King Kong versus the tick. But apparently the amount wasn't the main issue for Jesus because I want you to notice what Jesus says when he witnesses this. He waves over to his disciples. He says, Peter, John, come, come here, come here, come here. I want you to see this. You see this little widow? That destitute widow has given more than all the others. Not just more than any other did you see Jesus' words? More than all the others combined. And the disciples said, uh, Jesus, evidently you, you missed the day in math when we learned addition and sub subtraction. I mean, all you got to do is you got to just look around. And you can see that she hasn't even given close to what everybody else has given. And Jesus said, no, 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 that's the whole point. I have been looking around. And it's obvious to me that she has given more than anyone else. And here's the reason why. Listen, because everyone else has given out of their abundance but she has given out of her poverty. Let me say it a different way. Everyone else has given a small part of their surplus, but she has given out of her scarcity. Everyone else has given what they are hardly going to miss, and she has given extravagantly what she could not afford. Because she put in everything she had. She gave everything she had to live on. Now, I don't know if that makes you uncomfortable, but it really makes me uncomfortable. Here's what I want to say to that. I want to say, Jesus, now wait just a minute here. Let's figure out this equation. Okay, poor widow, barely hanging on, plus no financial support, plus on the verge of possible dying equals giving all she has? 
that sounds irresponsible to me. I mean, because first of all, it's shocking that all she had to live on was two cents to begin with. Maybe, maybe we think Jesus should have stopped her and said, I mean, why didn't Jesus just say to her, hey, Sarah, Sarah, it's Sarah, right? That's your name? Look, look, Sarah, I, I really appreciate the thought behind all of this, and this is a really re- generous thing for you to do, but don't go overboard. Because all you really need to do is just do a portion. That's what everybody else is doing. Nobody else is giving everything that they have. So you don't need to try to do more than all of these people who have more money than you do. See, that's what I think Jesus probably should have said because it was all that she had. But it's interesting to me, Jesus doesn't try to stop her. I mean, that would be like me. Let me give you an illustration. That would be like me taking my entire paycheck for a month and putting it into the offering plate. And and that would be a sacrifice for me. But here's the thing. The truth is, it still wouldn't be the kind of sacrifice this widow made. You don't want to know why? Because I have alternatives. I mean, think about what I could do. Even if I put my entire paycheck into the offering, I could draw out for the next couple of months from my savings account. And then when I ran out of my savings account, I could sell some of my furniture. And, and then when I ran out of my furniture, I could downsize my house. And then when I ran out, you know, when I ran out then, then I could move in with my kids. <laughs> and when I ran out then, I could sell one of my kids. I have options. You have options. And I I might not be able to, you know, eat lobster bisque every night, but I could still have peanut butter and jelly and, and macaroni and cheese in a box. I have options. But this woman, she literally didn't know where her next meal was coming from. What was she doing dropping her next meal into the offering plate? Surely God would understand if she wanted to eat. I mean, what if she was someone that you knew? What if if she was your grandmother? She's barely eking out an existence. She's on a fixed income, and she sends her last dollar to a TV evangelist. Wouldn't you be happy about that? No, you wouldn't. And the truth is, neither is Jesus. See, Jesus isn't advising the widow to give her last cent any more than he's criticizing the others for giving out of their abundance. And in that comparison, here's here's the astounding truth I think that we're trying to get to here is we discover that gospel economics are very different than our economics. See, Jesus measures our generosity by more than the amount that we give. Jesus measures it by the level of sacrifice. The size of the poor widow's gift wasn't nearly as important to Jesus as the size of her faith. It was her faith that Jesus noticed. Everyone else gave an offering. She gave her livelihood. And I think one of the things that is astounding to me is that Jesus is measuring my generosity by more than the amount that I give. He's actually measuring it by the level of sacrifice I give, which is another way to say Jesus measures all of our generosity not only by what we give, but what we keep. 
And the truth is there's a difference between giving out of my abundance and giving sacrificially. And it doesn't matter, it have anything to do about who's smarter or who works harder. But I think this is a story not just about giving. I think it's about motivation. And the only thing I can think of that would possibly motivate someone to give such an incomprehensible act of generosity as the widow's offering, there's only one thing that would motivate her to do that. Love. A passion for generosity is ultimately based on love. You say, what do you mean by that, David? Well, all the other offering givers in their temple that day, I think they loved God. I think they also wanted approval from everybody else. But the widow's motivation had nothing to do with approval. It was pure love for God. Nothing else. Only love could call forth the kind of sacrifice that she made that day. And Jesus wasn't just recognizing her for her sacrifice. Jesus was saying, look at her love. You know what the definition for genuine sacrifice is? It's giving up something of value for something of a higher value. It's giving up something important to me for something that's most important to me. You know, we sacrifice for things that we love. You know, I'm thinking about my kids. If if one of my kids wanted a bicycle that he couldn't afford, he'd sacrifice other things for something he wanted more. He might want... He might want to spend it on ice cream, but if he wanted a bicycle more than ice cream, he would save for the love of the bicycle. You know, we're willing to give up some ice cream now for a bicycle later. We're willing to sacrifice a few video games now so we can buy a bicycle later. And the same is true for relationships. We sacrifice for people that we love. Parents do it all the time. My parents did without so that my sister and I could have what we needed. My parents wore the same old clothes for years so that my sister and I could look nice in our newer clothes. They drove an old car around that was just a beater for most of my growing up years so that my sister and I could play baseball and take piano lessons. Now, why would my parents do that? It wasn't because they didn't want stuff for themselves. It was because they knew they couldn't have both. They didn't have the option of both. And so they were willing to sacrifice something of value to them, stylish clothes and a new car, for something of greater value to them, which was us. We sacrifice for things we love. And that's Also true for our relationship with God because God has loved you and loved me in a sacrificial and generous way. We want to return our love to him in loving and sacrificial ways. And as devoted followers of Christ like you are, you are willing to give up something of value to you now because of a higher value you have of loving God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And that's why this widow did what she did. 
She loved God so deeply and she wanted to know God so intimately that it was more important to her to give what she could than to keep what she had. I'm not saying that was prudent. I'm not saying that was smart. I'm not saying that was practical. But you cannot doubt the fact that her decision wasn't based on what was practical. It was motivated by passionate love for God. Are you with me so far? So I'm going to get kind of, I want to get practical with you for a second. I've been, I was thinking about this this weekend. That passion for generosity I think it can be measured with three basic categories. When it comes to your giving, it's three different categories. And here's what they are. Number one, giving out of the overflow. That's the first level of generosity. And what giving out of the overflow means is that's when you just give off the top. That's, that's throwing pocket change into the plate. That's giving a little bit of surplus out of what you probably are not ever going to miss that's the most basic level of generosity, and that's when people give out of the overflow. That's number one. The second level of generosity, number two, is giving as personal sacrifice. And personal sacrifice is giving up something that's important to you, but that you can kind of live without. So if, if I sold my golf clubs... In order for me to give, whatever, let's say to Mission Sunday, and that meant that I couldn't play for a year, that would be a sacrifice for me. But it wouldn't require that much faith for me, because I can live without golf. It might require counseling for me. It's a sacrifice because I want to play golf, but it's not going to really change my life that much. It's giving as personal sacrifice. That's the second level of generosity. But here's the third level, and this is the one that I, I'm still trying to figure out for myself. Giving in faith as an act of love. And I'm not trying to tell you that I'm there. But I'm trying to tell you I do think that's the next level of generosity. And I'm convinced that this widow was able to make the sacrifice she did, not only because she loved God, but that she deeply believed in this God that she loved, that he was going to provide for her needs. And believing in what you can see, that's called proof. Believing in what you can't see is called faith. And there are times in our lives, if you want to grow in a deeper relationship with God, that you have to walk by faith and not by sight. It doesn't take a lot of faith to walk with something you can see. It takes a lot of faith to walk when you can't see and you're trusting in something that is unseen. You want to know why? Because as long as we can see where we're going, we don't need God. It's interesting, we call a day like this faith promise. This is kind of one of those days where we're not just talking about money. What we're talking about is, is how deep do you want to really get in this relationship with God? Because as long as I have visible, tangible evidence of how I'm going to get somewhere, I don't know about you, but I can rely on myself. 
I, a lot of times, I don't need God when I can see how to get through a situation. You understand what I'm saying? It's not that I don't need him. It's that I feel more self-sufficient when I feel, feel like I can get there. And I think that's how it is for so much of our lives. We have, these, we have these tiny ideas of what God might be able to do through us and through our lives. And then we ask God to bless us at the level of our faith to help us to actually go to a place where Whatever we're going to do can only be done by the power of God. That's a totally different level of living. That's a totally different level of generosity. When all the time God keeps beckoning to you and me and saying, I don't just want your money. I want you. I want you completely. I, I don't want to just want 99% of you. I want 100%. And not just because I want to treat you like a puppet, but because deep down we all know that until you're 100% in at every level of your life, that, that there's never going to be all the things that could be accomplished with God through you until that point. I'm convinced that I'm not dreaming big enough dreams because I am limited by a vision of what I think God can do through me. And I don't want to live that way. I want to live at a level of faith that dreams God-sized dreams because I want God to do something through me I could not do without him. And here's what's amazing about it is that's where the intimacy's found. The greatest intimacy with God is when you're at the deepest level of trust with God. When you say, God, if you don't show up, I am in so much trouble here. Faith. Promise. God doesn't judge just by the amount of your giving. He looks at your heart. God doesn't judge you just by the bottom line. I think God is saying, where's the love? So, I want to finish with this story. This is Faith Promise Sunday. It's Global Mission Sunday. It's partly to do with what kind of a church are we? I remember the first time that I went to Cuba. It was about eight years ago, and we have an amazing work of the church in Cuba. It's, Cuba is a place that's been under communism for since Castro came into power. There's a lot of stories I won't tell you about what happened to the Church of the Nazarene when Castro came into power, but let's just say this. They began to suffer in ways they'd never suffered before. The average, every single pastor who lives in Cuba, by government mandate to keep the church down, it's $15 a month. That's, that's the law in Cuba if you're a pastor in any church. You make $15 a month. So it's a vow to poverty. You want to be a doctor? You can make more money. You want to be a lawyer? You can make more money. You want to be a pastor? It's $15 a month. That's the kind of oppression they live under. And that's just the surface. But Christy and I were there at, at the gathering of what at the time was one Nazarene district. Now we have three. That's how fast they're growing in, in Cuba. But it was one service. It was, in a, it was an auditorium about this long in length, about this, this much of the, you know, from the sides. And it was packed. It was so full of people. Every single seat was taken. It was standing room only at the back. And, and it had these windows that were along the side of the wall. And there were people lined up 10 deep on the outside so they could listen in to what was going on. Take a look at this picture and I'll tell you about it in just a second. So uh, after I had gotten done preaching, the district superintendent came up and he looked out at those pack, that packed group of people. The energy level in that place was just electric. 
And, and the district superintendent said, we have just heard that our brothers and sisters, our Nazarene brothers and sisters in Manila, Philippines, have just had a terrible tsunami. It's destroyed and wreaked havoc on their country. And, and he said, when, when we had our hurricanes in Havana, those brothers and sisters, those Nazarenes, they gave to help us, and now it's our turn to give to them. We want to take up an offering, we want to receive an offering, and we're going to give it to the church in, uh, in Manila, Philippines, in order to help them. And the people cheered like it was Christmas morning. They were so happy to give. Now, the way they give an offering there is they, they play music and they dance. And I mean, I can't even imitate their dancing. They, they dance down, they give, and they run where everybody can see. And then they go back and they celebrate some more. And then they count the offering right on the spot. They count it right up there in front of everybody while they're singing. And after they had finished giving, uh, the DS came and he said, we've just counted the offering. It's not enough. We're going to take a second offering. And everybody went, yes. And in fact, when they started dancing again, I took this picture. These are the people on the outside of those windows who are saying, I want to give, I want to give. They're reaching through the windows and they're giving to this offering. When they counted the second offering, the total money given from them was about 1,000 U.S. dollars. Now, what does the average pastor make in Cuba? $15 a month. $1,000 doesn't seem, I mean, one of you could give $1,000 right now. But for them, I, I want you to see, do you see the level of sacrifice they were making? The DS brought me back he gave me an envelope, and he said, General Superintendent, I know you're going to be in the Philippines soon, which I was. And he said, I want you to give them this offering, and then I want you to give them this note from us. And he handed me a note. Two months later, Christy and I were in Manila, Philippines. And we were there with the Nazarenes there, and the place was just in devastation. There was about 1,000 people in that district assembly and as I got up to speak, I was able to tell them about the offerings that had been given in Cuba for their sake. And the people celebrated. They were weeping. They were crying and thanking God. I told them about the amount. I told them about the sacrifice that had been made. And then I read the note from the district superintendent to them. And this is what it said. My God will meet all of your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. Love the Cuban Nazarenes. And in that moment, as the people were celebrating again, I thought to myself, how does this happen? How does this young general superintendent, you know, I, I was not even 50 years old yet, how does a young general superintendent from Oklahoma stand in the middle of Manila, Philippines, giving them a message from Havana, Cuba. Where does that happen? Let me tell you where it happens, and this is unusual. Don't take this for granted. It happens in the church of the Nazarene because that's a part of the way this global family works. That's why we have Mission Sunday like Faith Promise here in Bakersfield. You get to be a part of that global family. And my prayer for you today is not just that you'll write something till it hurts, that you'll give something till it hurts. That is not what this sermon is about at all. This is a sermon about are you going to live by faith and not by sight? 
And this is a sermon about love. What's important to you? Because you're generous with things that you love. So would you take a moment and just bow your head and search your heart? As we prepare to, to give, and you may not be ready to give this morning. It might be a, something that you want to commit over the course of a year. But would you just bow your heads and just ask this question, Lord, would you help me to walk by faith this year and not just by sight? And would you help my passion for you and for your church to grow in such a way that I can grow in a deeper intimacy with you?